for the word. Now, Lord, it is joy that fills our soul when we come into this house. Sunday nights in the sanctuary are always special to God's apostolic people. And so when I open your word, I want to make sure that I feed your precious people tonight with things that are of substance, not something that is frail and fragile and will fall away like the dew of the morning, oh God, but it will be something that stays with us. Help me. Bless your people, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you would uh, join me in the gospel of John, the fourth. Uh, the fourteenth chapter. I welcome your attention. Actually, it is John thirteen, and we will read together from thirteen thirty-four through fourteen. Um, whenever we decide to stop, the older I get, the more Bible I read. Um, I figure if I can't preach good, at least I can read good Bible. <laughs> so, all righty. I feel like you're going to help me tonight. I can feel it rising. I feel, I feel it rising. I know I, I'm very blessed and honored to have my sweet wife with me tonight. She is my delight, my life's joy. She's the grandmother of my grandson. Isn't that awesome? Uh, yes, uh, she will not be called grandmother, though. I'll have you to know. Her name is Melly. Let's not discuss that. Uh, but um, I always love being with her. She tries to match me a lot. You see the orange in my tie. She peeked and saw it and planned accordingly. I love having a wife that is always trying to match me. Uh, so I try to be a blessing to her. There was a day I could read without these. Okay. Are you ready? A new commandment I give to you. This is Jesus speaking. That ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. If you have loved one to another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, whither goest thou? It's a good question. Peter has just been told that you guys will not ever know me heretofore as you have known me. Something Big is about to change. So Simon Peter asked him this very pertinent question. Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. But thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily. I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, Say Thomas. I love Thomas. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not where thou goest. And how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip, everybody say Philip. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. That means it'll be enough. Jesus said unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yes, thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest then, thou show us the Father. My subject for your consideration tonight, and I once again have uh, addressed the clock. I'm working to be finished here in not too long. I say that often. 
So, uh, I'm going to say this phrase a few times, and when I do, I, I wouldn't mind if you say it with me, okay? It's one of the longest sermon titles you will have ever heard. So, are you ready for maybe the longest sermon title you've ever heard? Here is my sermon title tonight. Pick yourself up. Tape it, take a deep breath. Dust yourself off. And begin to begin again. That's it. Long title. How many's going to help me preach? You feel like helping me preach? You may be seated in Jesus' name. Alice Walker wrote one of the most premier books of all history. That was a special note. If you could hit that a little bit more, that would help a lot, Brother Kevin. That's another one I've known for a long time. (laughs) Alice Walker wrote a book entitled The Color Purple, which was made into a movie in 1982, I believe. And it is the story of a little lady, I think her name is Callie, who has had life go sideways. She's a black girl that is not getting hardly anything her way. Therefore, she carries on this discourse with God. She writes letters, letters with God, about how things are not going the way they should. In this book, about letter number 12, She writes the very theme of why they named the book this. She said that God is not pleased when people walk through the field and come across the color purple and they do not appreciate it. As I go through life and watch living for God and being a child of faith myself trying to make this journey... It is often that I can get caught up in things that are um, discombobulating, shall I say. They are dislocating. They are moments where you feel disenfranchised and not apart. And uh, you're there, you're in the house, but you don't feel like you belong. And this can happen again and again in your life. It is that kind of situation that I've come to preach to for a few moments tonight. It is... Addressed here in the Gospel of John, which is one of the most beautiful books in the entirety of your Bible. When you know the book of of John and study the author of John who wrote two books in your New Testament, he both wrote, uh, and he potentially could have wrote five if you're counting one, two, and three John. But we know of substance he wrote the Gospel of John and the revelation of Jesus Christ by John. And it is uh, looked at that of all the writings in your New Testament Bible, they have been chronologically laid out. The first book written in your New Testament was the book of James. The second book written in your New Testament was probably 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Anyway, I'm not trying to get you to chase down when what book was written, but it does inform your mind when you start reading these books to realize what did they have when they wrote. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as known of as the Synoptic Gospels, that means they were written synonymously about the death of Jesus was approximately 30 to 33 A.D. Uh, and from 33, if it was the late date, until about 60, there was no biographies of Jesus that were in the world. There were the Gospels, uh, that are the letters written by Paul. There was the letter of James, who was the older brother of Jesus. Jude was the brother of Jesus. They wrote James wrote first because we know he died shortly after the sacking of Jerusalem in 70. And so as we try to lay out in our mind, not just knowing the Bible in its uh, layout as the organizers of canon put it together, but as we try to get a picture, a living picture in our mind of what the Bible is trying to teach us, it helps us know how to grab and hold things deep in our spirit. And when you learn about the Gospel of John, it's known as the Otto Gospel. It was written, or atoptic, it was written long after the first three Gospels, Mark's 
uh, was the first one to write. Matthew and Luke wrote about the same time. Luke wrote the most words in your New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But the most books were written by Paul. After that, John gave us some substantial words. But the thing about John is that he waited before he wrote. He was in no rush to write. It might have been that he was trying to recover from being boiled in a cauldron of oil. It might have been because of the terrors that drove him from Jerusalem. I cannot tell you why John waited so long to write his gospel. But we do know John and Revelation, and which one was written first, is not sure. But they were the last books written in your New Testament. In fact, they are the last books written in your Bible. And many think the very last book was the Gospel of John. Now, having seen that, it helps us to read John with a little bit of some hooks in our hands. Because John writes about different things. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us a great amount of miracles. And they were always talking about multitudes. 33 miracles are recorded of the miraculous power of God. Told us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They spoke of similar things from different viewpoints. But they told us the glories of it all. But when you get to John. John doesn't tell us about many miracles. In fact, he only records about eight. And five of them have never been spoken of before. And so when you read John, you've got to understand, John's coming to you, expecting you to understand the Bible. When you read the Gospel of John, he is so interlaced with the Old Testament. He's continually saying, as the Holy Ghost said, we would remember, so this scripture means this now. He is so in tune with the old Bible, which was the Septuagint, the Greek edition of the Hebrew, that he quotes verbatim scriptures from the apocalyptic of Daniel and from Zechariah and from Malachi. He's continually interlacing his gospel with prophecies from the old time. And he dances with the prophets and the knowledge of the scripture comes exuding out of John. And if you don't know what he's saying, you'll just think he's out there reading like he's writing some book. No, John writes with this amazing intertextuality of saying, you want to know what I know? I know what the Bible says. His Bible wasn't the New Testament. His Bible was Torah. It was the prophets. It was the it was those that had written before. And he knew the genre of their glory and the power of the apocalyptic where they they would speak of images and visions of four kingdoms coming down. John continually assumes that you know your Bible too. Because he says things about scripture that he does not preface as if he's introducing it to you. He's assuming you already know what he's talking about. Prime example is about the woman with the alabaster box who broke the alabaster over the feet of Jesus. John does nothing to set up her story. He takes no time to tell you who she is. He just assumes you know what Matthew, Mark, and Luke talked about. He says you have heard of the woman who broke the alabaster. And so there's this continual assumption that you love the Bible like he loves the Bible. And if you're reading what he's reading, you know the prophecies of old and you understand the power of what Jesus did on the earth. And if you're following Jesus because of the loaves and the fishes, John may not appeal so much to you. If you're following Jesus to always have the crowds and the multitudes, John's no longer impressed with that. He's only talking about one-on-one -on -one conversations. He, he's not impressed that there's multitudes following Jesus. He wants two talking beside a well. So John takes us down roads in a manner of saying, I know what they have written about Jesus before. But I've got to tell you another picture about serving Jesus that maybe they forgot to tell you. John has no question about what he's doing. He is resetting the book of Genesis. Genesis starts out a certain way and when John sits down to start his book, do you think he wondered how he was going to start his book? It was like you or me writing a thesis paper, trying to describe something to our professor. And when we do so, we're saying, okay, what's going to be the grabbing paragraph that we'll start our introduction with? But John is not at all confused. He says, I know how I'm going to start it. I'm going to start it the same way Moses started his. In the beginning, 
And so I'm going to go and redo what was undone in the first book of the Bible. In this last writing when he said in the beginning, God was, God said, let there be light. I'm going to start by saying in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And if you track the story of John, he's always upside downing. And that is a word because I just made it one. He's always turning upside down what was put in Genesis because he's saying, uh, I saw how it got broken in a garden. And so I'm going to let you know, it's all about to be fixed. And do you know where Jesus went to start the fix? To a garden. It wasn't some haphazard statement that he said, well, how shall we start this tale? No, he knows Adam messed it up in a garden. And so he gives us these chapters from 13, about 12 of John until 18 of John. There is this whole discourse that's spoken of as the farewell discourse. It's a long part of the gospel of John in which he tells us all these little details of what happens. And in this story... He gives us the dynamics of the power of the spoken word. Let me tell you something about your Bible. It was not written for you to read silently. The Bible was written to be spoken. In that day, there was not many people who could read, nor were there many people who could write of the literary uh, literacy terms of that era. Probably 15% of the Middle Eastern society could read or maybe potentially write. If you could write, you could be hired out at the modern day price of approximately $200 a day. The price of an industrial worker's pay for three days would be the pay you could make for one day's writing. But it was an expensive venture because just one piece of papyrus cost modern day $50. So if you want to sit down and write your girlfriend a letter, you better be already consecrated because there's a $50 bill right in there. So when you understand the context in which your Bible is written, it makes you appreciate more why. They wrote in a manner to be spoken See, when you read the Bible silently, you don't have to read it in the context of community. You don't have to go to church to read it silently. But when you anticipate that John's writing this thing to be read and heard as a together group, you understand that, hey, there's power of nodding my head at the right time. And hearing somebody say, mmm. Somebody across the room says, glory, glory. You didn't even know they knew how to talk in church, but up pops a hallelujah. And then there's that one that you're always used to that's always saying, my, 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 my. But you catch them saying, oh my, and you know it's gone to another dimension. Why? Because in the context of togetherness, you're receiving what was meant to be read. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Because they wanted you to hold it. And when John wrote what he wrote, he wrote it in a manner for you to have handles on it and you could hold it. The entirety of the book of Revelation you'll find in Revelation 1. There's a promise unto them that don't just read, do not just read the book. If you go into the, uh, the original, it says to read it aloud. Why, why, why does John do this? And then along comes these organizers who work to make it simple for us modern day citizens to where we can get in the Bible and find our place real fast. And we know we read according to the organizers, which, Brother Drummer, it's good to have you back. I felt the love in this house when, when they recognize you being in this house. It's good to have you back. <laughs> babe, babe, am I doing okay? All right, just watch the clock. All right. Those organizers can mess you up because we think at the end of the chapter is a great time to stop. But if you understand the original, there was no stopping. And many times we get to this story of the denial of Simon and we think it's a great time to stop because it's the end of the chapter. And we hear where the Lord is upbraiding him and saying to him, Peter... I know you think you'll follow me, but before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me. 
And we stop and have altar call. But Jesus didn't stop. Because as soon as he does this to Simon, he continues by saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in my father, believe also in me. For in my father's house are many mansions. And while some are still in a cramped position in the floor, thinking God had a moment to beat Simon up, here's what Jesus does. As soon as he has told him, you will deny me, he starts by saying, I know it's troublesome, but don't let it trouble you. So pick yourself up. Take a deep breath. Dust yourself off. And begin to begin again. Ah, but John's not finished. See, John tells us secrets. John says, there are things that Matthew forgot to tell you. And there are things that Mark left out in his haste to reach the Grecians. And Luke, oh, Dr. Luke, he was amazing in his medical terms. And you can see he knew terms like excruciating. He knew terms that were brought to him from medical school. But he missed to tell you some things. Had it not been for John, you and I would not know this next man very well. They called him Didymus, but his name is known as Thomas. Thomas, if we were to learn about him from Matthew, not much would be known. If it was Mark to tell us, not hardly anything would be told. If it was up to Dr. Luke to tell us about Thomas, it would have been forgotten. But, but John's writing from a different place. He's writing post-trauma. He wakes up with PTSD after miracles of God feeding multitudes and of raising dead and him being boiled in a cauldron of oil and surviving it, yet the survival did not keep him in an oasis. He is kept in a prison. He knows if you're going to serve God, you better not come just for loaves and fishes. Calm down, Elms. Calm down. And so John says, there's a guy that I've got to tell them about. I've got to tell them about Thomas. See, we know about Thomas. We know about Thomas from his uh, doubting, you know, doubting Thomas. Uh, you know about Thomas because here is Thomas. And he gets a bad rap. There's a lot of people that think they're better than Thomas. No, I'm sitting here saying maybe the first autograph that I get when I get to heaven is going to be Thomas. Because Thomas, oh Thomas, he was the guy that stood, said, unless I touch his hands and his side, I'm not going to believe that he's risen. Now, that may not have been a good thing after everything they said. You know, he had risen and they told him, that his friends were told him. But when you learn at the record, you, you go to the Bible record, you find out Thomas had a to-do list on the day of Easter. The first Easter, Thomas was trying to get some stuff done. Even though Chick-fil-A was closed on Sunday, Thomas had a to-do list from his wife. And he was nowhere around when Jesus is resurrecting. And so he has heard that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. And he's heard that they have seen him and they have felt, they have talked to him. He has heard about an appearance uh, to Mary and how she supposed him to be the gardener. And he's heard all these things. So he decides, I better catch up with them he shows up to where they are and he tries to get in the door but it's locked and he gets in the door and they shut it quick and lock it behind him and the scripture says that they were huddled in that house for fear so thomas walks in and he looks them in the eye and he says mm, you have seen him alive uh what's the door doing locked you say you have heard his voice. You say you saw the stone rolled away. Why are you afraid? Folks, how many times have you gone to the church house? You have seen people who have been miraculously touched last year in December. And now it's September. Or no, it's not. It's July. That's my birthday month, by the way. So anyway, anyway. And they're not acting like they had a miracle. You ever seen people that have had a miracle? Now they're not acting like they've had a miracle? Oh, oh, maybe that doesn't happen in Palm Bay, just down in South Florida. I understand. They were on the front row at the crusade, but now they're kind of slow in their responses. So Thomas sees this stuff and he does what I would do. <laughs> Thank God for Thomas. He said, uh-uh. 
Listen, all this stuff y'all told me, everything you have told me, I'm not going to believe it because you're not acting like it's real. When, when you start acting like it's real, then I'm going to do it. But, but I'm not going to believe it until I touch him. Somebody's listening. Somebody's listening. Somebody's listening because he can't come through the door for it is locked. So he just comes through the wall. He doesn't see all the shouters on Sunday night and hiders on Friday night. He walks up to the man who says, you're not acting like what you say is real. And he said, Thomas, listen to me, buddy. Take that finger. the story we like that story i don't need to preach it right now but it's an awesome story and so it's that thomas we're learning about here john's taking time to tell us about that thomas he's just told us peter you're about to deny the lord but the lord told you immediately let not your heart be troubled (laughs) see you think that doesn't go together don't you because you believe all those organizers that came in the second third fourth century bc but we're apostolic are we not The Bible was written with verses and chapters. When John's giving to us the layout of the farewell discourse, he puts it all together on purpose to tell you there's a rhythm to this reward. He's on his way to a garden to put back together what the first Adam broke apart. And he's going to go to a garden to get it done. He tells us about Peter. Now he's telling us about Thomas. And Thomas is sitting here scratching his head. And he says, um, Lord, you just said the way I go, you know. And Thomas is going, uh, no. We don't know the way you're going. And Jesus looks at him and says, and this is so amazing. I don't have time to chase this rabbit, but there are more I am statements in the gospel of John than you ever even can understand. I know you Bible theologians out there know of the seven I am statements, but if you will go back and find what is known as the first century Aramaic Targum and buy the parallel Bible where that arc, that Targum has King James on one side of the page and the original Aramaic uh, from the first century on the right side of the page, you will see that there are 23 times that Jesus says overtly, I am the living God. Every time there's an I am in the, new, in the book of John, it's not just I am like us English people read it. He says, I am the living God. And this is one of them that he says to Thomas. He says, I am the living God, the way, the truth. The life, no man goeth unto the Father, but by me alone. I'm the only way. I am the living God. You want to know why we baptize in Jesus' name? Because he is the living God. You know why we pray in Jesus' name? Because he is the living God. You know why we worship to the King Jesus? He is the living God. He's not a way. He is the way. He's not a truth. He is... Thomas, oh Thomas, oh Thomas, pick yourself up, take a deep breath, dust yourself off, and start beginning to begin again. But that's not the last. John is telling us this story. The author gets to tell us his viewpoint of the subjects. He's made Peter look like a pretty bad guy. And yet Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. He does a very good job of making Thomas look like a bad guy. And yet underneath there's a current that John's trying to tell you. 
that when you run up against doubt and when you're going to church with folks who aren't acting like the church and when you feel like you've seen enough, don't stop because he's still more than enough. And so John is sitting there and he's telling us more about this farewell narrative, this discourse. And Jesus is about to get them to the garden. And if you follow it all the way from about 12 to 18, you'll find there's a time they were sitting down. He washes their feet. Halfway through, he gets them all standing up. And there's a whole other two chapters of him talking to them while they're on their feet. And then finally he said, let's be going. So Philip pops his thoughts out. Jesus just said, uh, no man can go into the Father but my, me. And Philip says, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. In other words, show us the Father and it's enough. I want to ask you a question. You wonderful saints of East Wind Pentecostal Church. A church that gets the teaching of Bishop Myers on Wednesdays so powerfully. I loved last week how long he took to get his paper straight. Ain't nobody hurrying him. He looked at it. I mean, that was about 30 seconds there, Elder. Why? Because he's going to get right. He's not here to fluff you and, and fraternize you and recruit you. He's just saying, here's the way, walk there. But it's not just that. You've got the dynamic preaching of your pastor who is a premier man. Not to speak of his preaching and his books and his wonderful wife and his Bible quoting, toting kids and uh, all of that. And then the guest preachers that you come through. Uh, listen, I can't even believe I'm on the, this year's roster. I mean, if you need a miracle, they'll grow you a new hand in five minutes. Crusades, we've got people walking, eyes seeing, football stadiums blowing up. We've got dynamic evangelists and preachers. And I can't tell you how many words of faith go out over this pulpit. Why am I saying all that? Because a lot of you are like Philip. How, when is enough enough? Philip? You saw him raise the dead. You saw him walk on the water. You saw him stop a funeral procession and raise a little boy and give him back to mama. Philip, you were there on, in the boat when Peter got out and walked. Philip, you were the one who saw him deny the crowd who wanted to make him king. And he commanded you go to the boat. You saw all of that. And here you have the audacity to say to him, show us the father and it will be enough. As if you haven't already seen enough. And the gracious good shepherd says, how long have I been with you? And you have not known me. If you have seen me, you have seen the father. Musicians come, I'm closing. Years ago, there was a rift. It still exists to some degree between France and America. You all are aware of it. I don't have to go down that road. But this is a rift that existed all the way from back in World War I. World War II, there was a rift that existed. There's a very proud nation, France. They think a lot of themselves, and they have a lot of reasons to think of themselves. They wanted to uh, be nice to us, and so France, uh, of their own pockets, gave us Lady Liberty as a gift. We celebrate her in the harbor of New York, and she stands there. But when you go there, just remember, you're looking at something France gave to you. But it was just an attempt to solve a storm because these two nations of pride and prejudice have had aught. And of course, we know, us Americans, and I've been blessed to be at, in Paris a few times. In fact, I have been blessed to be there with your pastor. Would you please tell him to behave when he goes to Paris? He, he seems to lose his, uh, his um, world traveler status. Which camera shall I look at right now? Here, I'll look at this camera. Brother Myers, calm yourself down in the lobby. 
They liked me so much they turned it down right then. It's all right. You know. No, he's, he was perfect. But you get there, and I'm telling you, the first time I went to Paris, I had such a hard time not having an attitude. They treated me like a piece of not-so-good uh, whatever. They liked my wife. American women wasn't a problem back then. But, man, me, uh, it's just crazy. Celine Dion was there, and I went and got my picture taken with her. And my father-in-law took my picture, and Celine Dion hung all over me. I've got it on picture. I mean, my wife saw it, and she was hugging me all over. Like I was wanting to say, um, back off, Celine. I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a man of God. I don't do the Vegas. But there, it was so bad that they treated me that I, I, I never wanted to go back to Paris. I didn't. It just was a ter- terrible thing. So that, that's a real thing. And hopefully it's getting better. I don't know. I don't know if it is. But it was so real. When Kennedy pre- was president, there was this stress between the nations. Yes, we did what we did in World War II. And we, we essentially stepped in and helped the war get won. Uh, there are other ways we could say it. My... Anyway, I'm getting being very kind to our international audience. When Kennedy was flying to Paris to meet with an aged de Gaulle, it was a moment that all nations were standing on tiptoes to watch. They were going to see who will make the first move towards the other. The National Enquirers, the TMZs were continually trying to see who's going to be the first one to reach out and shake hands. And so all nations were watching. And finally, after Kennedy got there, he held himself stiff for a while. And de Gaulle, in his pride and his prestige, he held himself back. There wasn't hardly a moment where you could see them touch hands even. But there was one moment on a balcony that... De Gaulle and Kennedy mutually made a gesture to one another in an exchange of respect. A man was there uh, that had um, that moment, but he had a friend that, his first name was Dietz. A friend who was an amazing painter. And Dietz, he said, I, I saw him after this moment, he said, you know, I wish... I wish you could have caught that moment when Kennedy and de Gaulle met to touch. It was a a signature moment between our nations. And if you could have painted it, it would have been unbelievable. And his good friend, the phenomenal artist, Dietz, said, I did it. I painted it. You've already got it? He said, yes, I do. Come to my studio and I'll show you. And the man went to his buddy's studio where this renowned painter had his works and he showed him a picture there and it was a a picture of a beautiful woman standing in the picture and in the background was these vague out of focus balcony you couldn't hardly tell who was on the balcony and he said look there's the moment and his friend was confused he thought what's going on he said why you don't recognize this he said no So he went and called through the door. He said, honey, come here. Come here, babe. He brings his wife in to meet his friend. He said, you haven't met my friend, have you? And she said, no. And he introduced his wife to his friend. And his wife walked out. They were over 60 at this point. And and, uh, his wife walked out and he looked at his buddy and he said, can't you see it? He said, what do you mean? He said, that woman in the painting is my wife. thought of the woman that just walked out of the door and she was aged it was past her prime there was marks of of a hard life upon her face and her brow and her hair and he said you know who that was that was my wife the very first day i saw her and the day that kennedy and de gaulle reached out to gesture mutual respect i caught the picture And he thought, this man has never gotten over the beauty of his wife. On the day when the world was wanting to see two world leaders, this man had his eyes on his bride. 
I don't know how much of the news media you follow, but I know one place that Jesus Christ is looking. He isn't following the events in the capitals. He's not watching all the stories from Hollywood or the events from the United Nations. He's got his eye on a lady, a girl he fell in love with a long time ago. And this girl, many times, will not act like she knows who she is. Sometimes she will be Peter who denies him three times before the rooster crows in the morning. But Jesus will say to him, you're going to deny me, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in the Father, believe also in me, for in my Father's house there are many mansions. Can you hear him wooing Peter? I'm building a house for you, Simon. You may deny me, but I have a house for you. Along comes Thomas, Thomas, who doesn't believe hardly anything after he's seen all this glory. He's not going to believe it again. And he says, you said we know the way. I don't know the way. And Jesus sees Thomas. And John wants you to know it. John said, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way. I am the living God. The way, the truth, and the life. Thomas I love you. Philip pipes up and says, Show me the Father and it'll be enough. And Jesus thinks, It hasn't been enough. How long must I be with you? And you don't know me. But instead of upbraiding him, he just says, When you have seen me, Honey, You've seen the Father. And so here you are on a Sunday night in July. There's no crusade and you're not even impressed with the way you worshiped tonight. And you're wondering what the Lord thinks. And sometimes it's not enough for you. And sometimes you are always wanting another touch. And sometimes you might even deny him a very way. Here's what I want you to know. He's still got eyes on you. So why don't you take a deep breath. Pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. And begin to begin again. I'm going to open this altar. And I'm asking people who have been fighting moments like this. You have had grand times in your past. You've had great miracles. You've seen the crowds. You've seen this building wall to wall for Easter dramas. You've seen miraculous miracles from the powerful voices of men of faith. You've had amazing missionaries. But right now, it seems like you just need one more touch. Would you stand and make your way down to this front? Because I'm about to have this praise team sing, Ride on King Jesus. No man's gonna hinder me. Ride on. Uh, what you, you may not be feeling it. That's all right. He's got eyes for you. You're more interested in the news, but he's more interested in you. You're more interested in what's happening in technology, but he's more interested in you. You're worried about some walking away, but he's got his eyes on you. You're worried about some that are not showing up, but he's got his eyes on you. And he wants you to know to pick yourself up. Take a deep breath. There's another healing for you. There's another touch for you. There's another blessing for you. He's not leaving you out. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. You're disappointed in what you've been the last month. Let not your heart be troubled. You've got this last week in a disappointed way, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in my Father, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. I'm here to tell you again, Lord, you're enough. You're enough. As they begin to sing this old spiritual, I want to tell you, I see purple in this house. 
I see blessing in this house. I see kept people in this house. I see miracles in this house. I see deliverances in this house. I see a God who knows the valley you're walking through. And he's saying, I will bring you through. And so from the cotton fields to the sanctuary of East Wind, we're about to sing what the disciples of the Lord sometimes bent, sometimes dislocated, sometimes with doubt, sometimes having not had enough, sometimes it feels like we need another touch. Jesus is saying, I got something more for you. Let not your heart be troubled. you march in place. No man cannot hinder me. No man cannot hinder me. Right on me, Jesus. Oh, no man cannot hinder me. Right on Jesus. Right No man cannot hinder me. No You need another time? Troubled! 